Come to God's Word again this morning. We'll be looking at Genesis in a moment. And as I shared in the first service, and I'm sure I've shared with you before, you know, I don't have to preach. I get to preach, right? I mean, you, you get to hear it. And hopefully that's your attitude as you come here this morning. You don't have to be here, that you want to be here and God's, hear God's Word this morning as we unpack some things here in this passage in Genesis. You know, in life, there is often... A huge gap between the ideal and the real. Between the ideal and the real. Well, Pastor Stewart explains this gap by a personal example of his family going apple picking each fall. He says, here's the ideal day of apple picking. The leaves are golden and rusty. The sky is beautiful and it's 75 degrees. We all pile into the van and start singing and laughing as we merrily drive to the orchard. We arrive early in the morning with plenty of time to enjoy the orchard. And surprisingly, the folks at the apple orchard say, you know what, today apples are free for families. So our kids guzzle apple cider and stuff themselves with apple donuts and they don't even get a sugar high. Finally, after a perfect day at the orchard, we drive home as our children keep saying, Wow! Thanks, Mom and Dad! Thank you so much for taking us to the orchard. The real day looks like this. It's a disaster from the start. We leave at least two hours late. The apple orchard closes at five. We're leaving at three, and it takes an hour and a half to get there. But I bark at everyone, We're going, so get in the car. We missed lunch because we were scrambling to get everything done. With blood sugar levels plummeting, my wife and I start arguing. I think it's her fault that we're leaving late. She says it's my fault. We keep arguing. We keep arguing until the kids interrupt us, and now they're arguing with each other. I turn around and snap at the kids. Knock it off. I'm arguing with your mom. When we pull into the apple orchard, we only have 30 minutes before closing time, so we tell the kids, hurry up, we're going to go have some fun. By this time of the day, all the good apples are gone and nothing is free. The entrance fee was outrageous because they know they can rip off suburban families who are trying to pretend they're in the country for the day. When you get the kids back in the van, it's already dark, and on the way home, we finally get our apples. We stop at McDonald's for an apple turnover. <laughs> Now, unfortunately, family life and church life aren't always ideal. That's why we have to practice love, and acceptance, and forgiveness. In the real world, there are two things that will happen in relationships. Sin and being sinned against. Some people act so surprised when they discover that the person they said, I do to, offend them in the marriage. Some people act so surprised when they attend this lovely church to find out that all the people aren't so lovely all the time. I'm not saying excuses anything, but what do you expect? It should be of no shock to you whatsoever that as imperfect people rub up against each other will in fact rub each other the wrong way. That Christians sometimes can't get along should not surprise you. What is of great surprise, though, is where there's unforgiveness. The forgiven are to forgive. That's a rather simple truth. 
this morning. It's really the bottom line truth, and it's rather simple in speech. It's simple to say, but it's very difficult to practice. The forgiven are to forgive. And we have a wonderful illustration of forgiveness in the life of Joseph. And so if you're not there, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45 as we continue in our sermon series on the master's design as we look at the life of Joseph. So Genesis 45, we left off last week, you might recall, with a door open, wide open, for reconciliation to take place. Joseph put his brothers through a series of tests to determine their repentance and trustworthiness. And they passed the tests. They admitted their guilt. Joseph saw change. So the conditions are in place for healing of a fractured relationship. Consciences were awakened. Grace was being extended. And trust was being rebuilt for the brothers demonstrated change. That's what we looked at last week. All right, let's look at Genesis 45 this morning. Principle number one. Principle number one is true forgiveness protects the one you are forgiving. True forgiveness protects the one you are forgiving. Now, as we come to chapter 45 this morning, many of you know uh, what is coming. And so you kind of miss out on the full impact of what comes next. I remind you that Joseph has kept his identity up to this point from his brothers. He knows who they are, but they only see him as the governor of the land of Egypt. They don't know it's his brothers standing there. To this point, uh, he's also been able to go off to a private room and have a good cry but keep himself in check around his brothers. Well, that's about to change. The dam is about to burst. Genesis 41, verse 40, 45, verse 1. 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. When Joseph couldn't restrain himself any longer, he asked everyone to clear out. He wants everyone out of the room except his brothers. And I ask, why? Why? Why does he ask everyone to leave? Now, I don't think it's a stretch here at all to see that this is Joseph's way of protecting his family. He's protecting their reputation. You see, this was a family matter. Everyone didn't need to know about it. Now, it isn't to say at all, hear me on this, it isn't to say at all you're never to bring others into the family matter for some perspective or, or objectivity and guidance. There is a place for that. But true forgiveness protects the one you are forgiving. You don't need to announce it to everyone when you forgive. It's actually an unforgiving spirit that wants everyone to know how much you were hurt, how, how you were wronged. And so Joseph has everyone Leave And the rest of verse 1 says, So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. Notice it says, And his eyes filled up. No, no, no. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph weeps. There isn't just this single tear running down his cheek. He's not saying his, his eyes are just sweating. No, no. He's wailing. He's sobbing. He's crying uncontrollably. And the brothers must have been freaking out that the man second in command is bawling. 
And if we are reading this for the very first time, and we could place ourselves in the brother's shoes, we might be able to feel the weight of all this. To the brothers, he was the governor, he was the prime minister, and up to this point, uh, uh, Joseph had been using an interpreter. Well, he settles down, Joseph settles down, he controls himself, and he says in uh, verse 3 now, verse 3, I am Joseph. What powerful words. And then he asks, is my father still living? Now, now folks, it's been 22 years when Joseph left his dad. 22 years since they last saw Joseph. And remember, the brothers convinced their dad that Joseph was dead. That was over two decades ago. And for more than 20 years, they lived as if Joseph was dead. Over for all the 20 years, they, they told the same story whenever they had to speak again of Joseph, that he was dead. I mean, once you, once you lie, you have to have a good memory and you have to keep saying the same story. And that's what they do. He's dead. No, he's dead. This is how it happened. The animals got to him. Here's the, yeah, remember the coat, Dad? 22 years, that was what they had been saying. And when you say something that long, even if it's false, you begin to believe it yourself. I mean, I remember years ago, when I was around 10 years old, a friend and I were messing around with some matches out in the woods behind my house. When the fire, we playfully started get out of control, that we had to run back to the house and call the fire department. Now the story, the story we told the fire department, the story we told our parents, the story we told everybody else is that we discovered this fire while walking in the woods. Now the only part that was true about that is that we, uh, we discovered it after we lit it. And the fire was, was contained really within minutes by the fire department. It wasn't a huge fire, but it was scary for a 10-year-old who started the fire but said, uh, no, no, we just discovered it. And you know what? I told that version of the story so often, I started to believe it. I remember years later telling that false story when my, one of my sisters who knew the truth said to me, you know that isn't true, right? <laughs> I had told that story for so long, I started to believe it myself. I mean, have you ever done that? I mean, are you in a situation right now where you have convinced yourself over time that your version of the story is correct? And it's preventing uh, you, know, the, you, you from hearing the, the other side of the story? We'd be open to facing the truth. The brothers have been telling their story for so long, I think they convinced themselves, and their tr the Joseph uh, uh, brothers here, the, the truth was staring them right in the face. And can you imagine when the brothers heard, after convincing themselves of that, I am Joseph? The chill that had to come over them. Do you understand the shock value in hearing those words? They had never expected those words to come out of that man's mouth. And the rest of verse 3 says, But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Now I think sometimes the Bible kind of, it's, it's an understatement. They were terrified? No, no, it means dismayed, but really what it means is it's the thought is one of panic. They're panicking. 
I mean, what thoughts would be swirling around in your mind right now? You're standing before the one you attacked, let's say, with hurtful words. Or, or maybe you're standing before the one you betrayed. Or, or the one that you pushed out of your life. And then there you are, face to face, with what would have, that person would have every right to give you a piece of his or her mind. They must have wondered, oh, yeah, yeah, I know why he's clearing everybody out of the room. This is where he's going to let us have it. This is all about revenge. And this is what makes Joseph, what Joseph says, Joseph says next so remarkable. Uh, little did they know that the clearing out of the room was not to hurt them, but true forgiveness protects the one you're forgiving. Secondly, true forgiveness absorbs the pain. Now, this is where it's getting really hard. Okay, I just tell you up front. This is where it's getting really hard. True forgiveness absorbs the pain or the hurt. The brothers, they're filled with panic. They stand before the one they victimized. And Joseph says to his brothers, verse 4, Come close to me. Again, put yourself in the shoes of the brothers and hearing this invitation to come close. I can hear Reuben whispering to Judah, you go first. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's your whole mess started with this dumb idea. And I can hear Judah saying, no, 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 Reuben, you go first. You're the oldest. I mean, who wants to move close to him? I mean, it's 20 years later, and this is where Joseph could really stick it to him. Come close, I'm going to give you one. He hasn't seen his dad for over 20 years because of what they did. He didn't live a normal teenage life because of what they did. He lost out on the senior prom. He missed his graduation. He missed birthday celebration and holidays with the family all because of what they did to him because they couldn't control their jealousy. Come close to me. Joseph says. Folks, that's what true forgiveness does. It's an invitation to close the loop, to remove the distancing that has taken place because of the wrong. Joseph had been wronged, but he pursues them. And from the moment he saw them, his goal was to restore, not avenge. And I believe that Joseph had already worked through this matter of forgiveness in his own heart. Why do I believe that? Because in our time in this study, if you've been with us, if not, you can read it from chapters 37 to where we are here. But have we ever seen Joseph as retract his life, holding a grudge? Have we ever seen Joseph having bitterness or blaming his brothers? No, no, no. We've seen the opposite. Go back with me to chapter 41 of Genesis for a moment. Hold your place here. But just I want to see one verse in chapter 41 of Genesis just for a moment. Now, in Genesis 41, Joseph uh, married Potiphar's daughter and had two sons. All right, look at me at verse 51. It tells us in verse 51, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh. Why did he name him Manasseh? Well, it's because God has made me forget all my trouble. What did he forget? Did he forget the, 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 the events? 
Was all that happened to Joseph erased from his mind? I mean, don't you wish you had an erase button? Joseph isn't saying here. He couldn't remember what happened to him. You know, the, the rejection and the attack on his life, the, the, women's, the woman's cries of rape that were false and landed him in prison, the two years of being forgotten in prison. Now, these things are etched into his mind. Did he forget all the pain? No. No, God worked in him to forget all the trouble because true forgiveness absorbs the hurt, absorbs the pain. Joseph wasn't about to keep a list of all wrongs. Do you? Do I? Do we have this mental list of all the trouble someone else has caused you? You might have heard of this letter that Bob wrote to his, his neighbor. And, and, and he's writing it, handwriting it, and he's mailing it off. And it said this, Dear Frank, we've been neighbors for six tumultuous years. When you borrowed my tiller, you returned it in pieces. When I was sick, you blasted rap music. <laughs> when your dog went to the bathroom all over my lawn, you laughed. I mean, I could go on and on, but I'm certainly not one to hold grudges. He says, so I'm writing this letter to tell you that your house is on fire. Cordially, Bob. I think he might be holding on to some things. See, grudges keep people at a distance. Forgiveness invites them to come close. And as the brothers dared to move closer, Joseph then said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Worth noting here, that Joseph doesn't deny what happened. Often our forgiveness can be marked with, oh, it's all right, I've already forgotten, not a big deal. No, 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 this was a big deal. It was a very big deal. But forgiveness absorbs the pain. It absorbs the hurt. And so Joseph is free to offer himself to his brothers. Look what he says in verse 5. This is amazing. Genesis 45, verse 5. He says, and now, do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. <laughs> do you see it? Do you see the nature of true forgiveness? He doesn't want them to stay in that place of distress over their wrong. He doesn't remind them what their sin cost him. He doesn't lay out to them all that they now own him, owe him for the hurt that they caused. He doesn't even pat himself on the back and say, you know, what you did was very, very wrong, but I'm going to be the bigger person and forgive you. It's not what he's saying. Have you been wronged? I mean, I, I have to work this out in my own life. Have you been wronged? I don't doubt the pain it has caused you. I am not suggesting at all to deny the hurt. But are you at the place and you have to get there. Are you at the place where you can say, I don't want you to be distressed over this any longer. Or as the truth of the matter is, you really do want them to feel the distress again and again and again. I mean, are you so angry about the pain it's caused you that you're just waiting for an opportunity to pounce on it again? a five-year-old who was misbehaving all morning when mom had had enough. She decided 
he needed to have time out to figure things out. And so she um, was going to give him a time out and said, well, she wasn't going to put him in his own bedroom for he'd just get up from the time out chair and play with his toys. So she set up a chair uh, in her bedroom facing the clothes closet. And she placed him in this chair where he was to sit staring at the closet for five minutes. Then she left the room. From the kitchen, from the kitchen, she could hear strange sounds coming from the bedroom, and then suddenly everything got quiet. So the mother was so curious, so she went and opened the door to the bedroom. She said, Jimmy, she asked, what on earth are you doing? The little boy replied defiantly, I just spit, I pulled all your clothes down, I spit on every one of them. I spit on all your shoes. Now I'm just sitting here waiting on more spit. <laughs> now, that's how some people live their lives. I know it's a gross picture. But that's how some people, I'm just waiting to pounce on it again. I'm kind of quiet right now, but when I get the chance, I'm spitting. See, instead of thinking what you can do to make things right, you're staring at the pain that the other person caused, and you're fuming. I plead with you, stop fuming and start forgiving. To flat out refuse to forgive will keep you chained and enslaved. Studies have shown that the failure to forgive is often connected with all kinds of ailments, physical ailments, including stress, of course, and depression, and headaches, and stomach disease, and stomach distress, and heart problems, and on and on it goes. Is it time to release the one who has done you wrong? True forgiveness absorbs at some point, absorbs the pain and the hurt. You've got to work through that. I mean, isn't that what Christ did for us? He absorbed the pain and punishment that we deserved. He absorbed it all. And we don't want to forgive someone? The forgiven not to forgive, on some level, you're going to have to absorb the pain. Now remember that from a human perspective, everything that has happened to Joseph, the good, the bad, and the ugly, can be traced back to the jealousy of his brothers and their unfair treatment of him from a human perspective. But here's the third principle. Here's the third principle. True forgiveness is able to look past the actions to see the hand of God. True forgiveness is able to look past the actions and see the hand of God. Now, I want to reread verse 5 again, Genesis 45. So we've got to pick up the second half of it. Verse 5, Joseph says to his brothers, And now do not be distressed, do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Do you see it? You sold me here, God sent. You sold, God sent. And if you underline your Bible, it would be really good to underline those phrases. Selling me here, God sent. We see that recurring theme again in this section. Verse 7. God sent me ahead of you. You see it? Again in verse 8. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God sent me here. There it is again. But God, as we saw a couple weeks ago. There it is. You sold, God sent. Now, if this were the brothers talking this way, 
then it would come across as justifying their actions. It, it wasn't us who did this, Joseph. It, it God did it, and, and we're really not responsible. See how God has done all this? If they said it, it's just justifying their actions. But they're not saying it. Joseph is saying this. He has a healthy perspective on all that's happened to him. How did Joseph see his entire life? He saw God. He saw God's hand in everything that happened. He knew God was in ultimate control of his life. Now listen, you don't just turn on this perspective perspective when you need it. You can't just go, oh, you know what? I need to have this perspective now. Click. It's not how it works. It needs to be entrenched into your life, into your thinking, into your worldview, that God... For Joseph, he was at the center of his life, all the way through. We've seen it. When Potiphar's wife, remember, made the moves on Joseph as a young adult, he said, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? God is at the center of his life. When his two cellmates, remember, they were troubled by their dreams, they needed someone to explain the dreams to them, Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to God? God is at the center of his life. When Pharaoh needed an interpretation for his dream, what did Joseph say? I cannot do it. It's not in me. But God will give Pharaoh the answer. God was at the center. God wasn't just a spoke in the wheel, a part of his life. He was at the hub. And you cannot do, I cannot do, what Joseph did here in forgiving his brothers without first acknowledging the providence of God. Joseph's able to see the hand of God in every area of his life, which became the key to being able to forgive like he did. Now, I'm going to come back to the sovereignty of God in the face of evil uh, as we, uh, in two weeks as we close out our series. But for now, let me say this, and, and, and I believe it's on the screen. Reconciliation comes through forgiveness, and forgiveness comes through recognizing God's sovereignty. Recon, uh, reconciliation comes through forgiveness and forgiveness comes through recognizing God's sovereignty it was, it was this proper perspective that allowed Joseph to forgive in the way he did he could look past the actions to of his brothers and could see the hand of God moving in his life now as an important aside as an important aside I don't want us to miss this the nature of sin is not altered by the use that God makes of it let, let me say that again the nature of sin is not altered by the use that God makes of it. In other words, poison is still poison, even though that poison might be used in medicine that heals. It's still poison. Sin is still sin, even though God may choose to use that sin in the unfolding of his plan. We are still responsible for the sin for which God bears no blame, but he can use it for our good for his purposes. We can say, see what I did here? This is, all, this is great. God's using it. No, it doesn't alter that at all. Still responsible for it. Because what we've done cannot be undone. But God can take the worst moments and make something beautiful out of it. And we will spend more time on that in our final week of the series in a couple of weeks. But right now, the question is, can you trust God with all the threads? We just sang it. Trust you with my life. We don't trust in our own wisdom. We don't trust in our own ways. And that our ways are his ways. They're not. Joseph looks past the actions to see the hand of God. 
Now look with me at verse 9. He instructs them, Joseph instructs them in verse 9, to hurry back to get dad. Okay? And then he gives them a script to what they need to say. All right, I want you to notice this middle of verse 9. He's going, this is what I want you to tell dad that I said when you get home. This is what you need to tell dad. What does he tell him to tell dad? Tell dad what big fat liars you are. No, he doesn't say that. Now tell God, I mean tell, tell dad how much evil you brought into my life. Make sure you tell him. That's not what he says. Now the Joseph of 17 years old might have put it that way. After all, he'd run back to dad and tattle on them, remember? He'd run back to dad and give that bad report of his brothers, but God has been working on Joseph in 20 years. It's now, hurry back to my father and say to him this. This is what your son Joseph says, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. And then he goes on and he tells the good news of where his family and extended family is going to live and that they're going to have plenty They will be provided for by God. This is all about here God saving lives. About God preserving his people. Fulfilling his promise to Abraham when he said, through you I'm going to make a great nation. This is all carrying that out. God's doing all this. He is in all this. And then Joseph gives them these instructions. Verse 14 after he gave these instructions verse 14, then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept and Benjamin embraced him, weeping. But Joseph doesn't stop with Benjamin. He tells us in verse 15 that Joseph kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Yes, even Judah, who was most vocal about getting rid of Joseph. Sounds a lot like what Jesus did in washing all the disciples' feet, even Judas. And then it says, afterward, his brothers talked with him. See, there's a reunion going on here. What a beautiful thing. Because of his proper perspective, they can now be reconciled. What a lesson in true forgiveness. How about you? Anyone who could use the embrace of forgiveness right now? But pastor, you don't understand the level of hurt. Pastor, you don't know what this person has put me through. It was C.S. Lewis who said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Right? Oh yeah, it's great. I love forgiveness. I believe in it. I need to do it now? Am I really called to forgive? Or am I trying to find a way around it? Like W.C. Fields, he was caught reading the Bible and he said, I'm looking for loopholes. <laughs> Are you looking for a loophole here? I don't really have to forgive. I'm looking for a less obvious solution. It's got to be in here somewhere. Now listen. You, got, you can't miss this either. You're not under any obligation to trust your enemy. You are not under any obligation to trust the unrepentant, to invite them back into your life, but you can still choose to forgive. You see, forgiveness does not mean, does not mean we let people continually use us as, as a physical or emotional punching bag, bag, but people, that people still need to be held accountable for their actions. Yes, 
We're not dismissing that. It's kind of a sign that I saw, heard about in a church parking lot located in a busy downtown area that said, we forgive those who trespass against us, but we will also tow them. <laughs> right? See, forgiveness may not remove the consequences, but it can prevent bitterness from taking root in your life. It can protect your heart from resentment. As a matter of fact, refusing to forgive those who have hurt you is actually giving them permission to keep hurting you. Think about that. You become a slave to their offense, and you're mostly hurting yourself. Church, we're to go through life as forgivers. The forgiven are to forgive. Isn't that what the Lord's Prayer captures in the words, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors? Any debtor you need to forgive? I got to work through this too, guys. It's different than you. Names popped in my head when I was going through this. Absolutely. But we need to ask yourself, and I invite you to ask yourself, am I a father who truly forgives? Or do I hold any of their past wrongs over their heads? I keep bringing it up. Am I a husband? Am I a wife who forgives? Or do I get historical when I've been wronged, reminding my spouse of all that he or she did? Am I a friend who forgives? Am I a brother in Christ who forgives my fellow brothers and sisters? Or am I keeping a record of wrongs, this list in my mind? Oh, go face to face with forgiveness. Don't be stuck in unforgiveness. There was a famous composer, perhaps I've shared this with you before, but there was a famous composer, the story goes, who had this rebellious son. And this son would come in later at night after his parents had gone to bed, and because of his hateful spirit, before going to his own room, he would go to his father's piano and slowly, as well as loudly, play a simple scale all but the final note. So he would play do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti. And then stop. Leaving the scale uncompleted, he retired to his room. <laughs> you close your people, this would drive you nuts. And meanwhile, the father, hearing the scale minus the final note, he'd writhe on his bed, his mind unable to relax because the scale was unresolved. And after tossing and turning, he then stumbled downstairs to the piano and he hit the previously unstuck note. Only then would his mind surrender to some sleep once again. There's some in this room who are stuck waiting for the other person to complete the scale. You're waiting for the last note to be played. Things are unresolved and you find it difficult to put your mind at ease. Listen, God wants to hit that note for you. He does not want you to live under the control of the unrepentance. What do you do while you wait for the offender to repent? You hand it over to God. Easier said than done. You let go of your anger and you deal with any bitterness. While you wait, maintain an attitude of readiness to welcome the repentant sinner, but forgiving him in your heart right now. Now perhaps, perhaps, you're the one who needs to strike the final key 
to bring the resolution to let someone else off the hook. You've been tossing and turning in bitterness and anger long enough. Listen, will you complete the scale, hit the final note, and extend forgiveness? Do it. Don't obsess on the wrong committed against you. Be obsessed with forgiveness because the forgiven are to forgive. Not long before she died in 1988, professed atheist Marganita Lasky, well-known secular humanist and novelist, she said in a moment of candor, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. Wow. Church, that's, that, 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 that's what this is all about here this morning. As we celebrate communion, that's what it's all about. That's what the cross is all about. It's significant to remember as we come to communion this morning that like Joseph, Jesus offers an invitation to come. He says, come, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, he says, and I will give you rest. Rest from your performance mindset. Rest from trying to get into heaven on your own. No, no, come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, come close. That's what this community table is all. Come close. In your sin, Jesus doesn't say, go, go. No, he says, come. Ephesians 2.13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. You see, there's no sin so great that God tells you to go away. There's no wrong you've committed that Christ cannot forgive you of. So come to Jesus. He has absorbed your debt. In him, we have true and total forgiveness. Come to him. Maybe it's for the very first time. You've never put your trust in Jesus, and now's the time to do that. You should try and do it yourself. Maybe say, no, come. Receive what I've done for you. I've absorbed your, your debt. I've canceled it. It's finished. Debt's paid in full. Come. Maybe that's where you are this morning. I invite you to do that before feeling like you got to take communion this morning. That's more important. Take care of that matter. But perhaps you say, no, no, I'm taking care of that. Well, Jesus would say, come to me with whatever it is that's kind of tripping you up right now. Well, you're going, ah, he can't forgive this one or I'm a repeated offender or whatever. Jesus says, don't go away. He says, come close. Come close. So as we come around the table this morning, before we do, let's just pause to pray silently. Whatever it is you need to do in doing business to the Lord here, and then I'm going to invite you to come and, and pick up your elements. But let's do that first. Just have a moment, moment of silence, and I'll close this out in prayer. God, we thank you for the sufficiency of Jesus' death on the cross that you have, through Jesus, forgiven 
all our sin, past, present, future. It's not in part that you've forgiven us, but in full. The debt has been paid. May we receive that in the, in, and not in sense of, of being saved again, but receive it in the significance of that to our lives. As we remember that this morning, how you absorbed our pain and hurt, how you've forgiven us of all our sin. And we delight in that, we rejoice in that, we celebrate that this morning in taking part in communion in Jesus' name. Amen.